from UNH, Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on IPM. I wanted to take an episode to discuss an important concept in IPM theory, and that is the concept of acceptable levels of damage. Other than properly identifying the pest that is causing damage, I feel that accepting a certain number of pest insects in your crop is the most important aspect to accepting IPM into your heart. Acceptable levels of damage can be situational. They can be based on economics. They could be based on emotional factors. For example, your acceptable level of mice in your house is likely zero mice. You would be willing to take out quite a few tools in the old IPM toolbox to keep mice levels below this threshold. However, your acceptable levels of mice in your barn might be a little higher. Perhaps you'd be open to a biological control, like a barn cat, to maintain that level. In commercial agriculture, acceptable levels are normally right at that point where the expense of going out and acting on that pest population is about equal to crop losses due to pest damage. We call that the economic injury level. Your bottom line is better off not acting until the number of bugs chewing or sucking away in the field grows beyond the level where you're losing money if you don't act. Once acceptable levels are established in any given crop, we can develop economic thresholds or action thresholds. These thresholds are what you actually see or count out in a crop as far as pest number or pest damage that would trigger a pest management action, like the number of aphids per so many plants, the number of moths in a trap per week, uh, perhaps the number of degree days after January 1st. Now, developing thresholds is a pretty complicated process, but luckily for us, insect population growth is normally pretty predictable. It's usually based on temperature. Um, So lots of us nerds have developed lots of models for us to rely on to get in there and act when the time is right. For many systems, these action thresholds can get very specific. For example, I'm going to read aloud an excerpt from the New England Vegetable Management Guide's recommendation for Colorado potato beetle scouting and potato. Quote, Scouting should be done weekly through mid-season. Walk the field in a V-shaped pattern and select 50 potato stalks at intervals, for example, every 10 to 20 paces, depending on field size. Count adults, large larvae, and small larvae separately. If the number of beetle adults is greater than 25, small larvae greater than 200, large larvae greater than 75, an insecticide should be applied. If the number of beetle adults is below 15, small larvae below 75, or large larvae below 30, No insecticide is required for that week. If the number of beetles in your sample is between high and low, no insecticide should be applied, but the field should be checked in three to five days. Close quote. So it's pretty straightforward, right? If you're going to use pesticide, time it for when it's the most useful. It also makes sense to avoid unnecessary applications of pesticide that disrupt development of biological control on your farm. Why kill all those good bugs working on your farm if it's not making a difference on the impact of the bad bugs, right? But what about when us nerds haven't gotten around to developing those action thresholds? What about when a crop is so understudied, we don't even know what the bugs are that are feeding on it, or what an acceptable level of these bugs are in that crop? But what kind of crop would be so understudied? What about one that's been illegal to grow for most of American history? I'm talking about industrial hemp. As of December 2018, 
the Farm Bill permanently removed hemp from the Controlled Substances Act. However, the Farm Bill did not legalize growing hemp nationwide. It only allows states to regulate hemp if they choose to. While many states have created regulatory programs for the production of hemp, New Hampshire is not one of them. Let me make this clear. Hemp production is not legal in the state of New Hampshire. Period. Whatever your feelings are on this issue, a new crop like this is very interesting to IPM specialists, Um, especially a crop that is so famous for its secondary compounds and potentially so well defended against pathogens and insects. To get over-informed on this, I talked to an entomologist down in Virginia where researchers had gotten special permission to study industrial hemp prior to the 2018 Farm Bill. Okay, yeah, I'm Katie Britt. I work for uh, Dr. Thomas Kuhar in the Vegetable Insect Pest Research Lab at Virginia Tech. I asked Katie what kind of challenges she's faced with working on such a controversial crop for her PhD, and she says she's had to take a lot of guff from just doing normal stuff. Or I've put my stuff in dryers on campus before, like to dry out the plant material that I have. And somebody's like, I'm getting high. It smells like marijuana in here. I'm like, "Eh." you know, never heard those jokes before. But I I think the public perception of it is pretty good. I haven't had too many challenges with people accepting it. Let's see. Or the challenges that come with the legality of it or the past few years, like I said, importing the seed has been a hassle. Like last year, we didn't get to plant until June, like I was telling you, because the seed was just held up at the Richmond airport. Like it was as simple as that. It just was in customs. It's also weird to, again, prior to this past December, but like I technically worked with a controlled substance, which is not at all what it is. But I mean, luckily nothing ever happened. I never got pulled over in the process of doing any of my sampling work or of us bringing um, plant material back from Kentland. But like if that happened, that would have been something we would have had to deal with and that wouldn't have been fun. Before we get into Katie's PhD work, we need to clarify the different types of industrial hemp crops because there are some major differences in what these plants are used for, how they're grown, and what parts of the plant need to be protected from pests. I had no idea until Katie explained. Okay, yeah, so industrial hemp is a really multifaceted crop. It's more like three crops in one. So um, the main purposes that you would grow this for, uh, the first being fiber, so t-shirts, ropes. Um, Historically, it was grown for um, ship sails. They would use hemp to make ship sails or ropes. Um, for ships. Um, The Navy would use them and hemp is also antimicrobial so if this stuff got wet at any time it wouldn't just kind of mold or rot like traditional rope. Um, You can also grow it for grain. Um, So you could call hemp seed a superfood, the the cool buzzword, but um, it has a lot of really good fats in it like avocado type good fats. You can use the seeds and sprinkle them on oatmeal or yogurt or something or throw them in smoothies. And they have a lot of good health benefits. Um, So that's why you would want to grow for seed. Um, Maybe also bird seed or animal seed. But then you get into a whole other situation with the FDA where it's not 
regulated and it's not tested all the way. So there's that. The grain can actually be pressed to make oil. And by that oil, I mean like cooking oil or um, salad dressing. So kind of olive oily, you know, where you can kind of drizzle it on a salad and you're still going to get some good fats out of it, but you're not actually eating the seed. A lot of people will buy the seed oil thinking that it's CBD oil. I mean, again, it's still like a nutraceutical. It's still got its nutritional benefits, but it's not the stuff that has all the cannabinoids or the true phyto compounds that are found in hemp. Some varieties are just straight for fiber um, where they can grow 15 feet tall or more. Um, but then there's dual purpose, which you would grow for grains and fiber, which is what I've worked with the past two years. So I hope you heard that. Different plants for different products. Big tall plants for the stems, other plants for the seeds. And none of the plants that Katie works with are grown for the flower, which is what is used to make CBD oil. This is a whole other ball of wax for another conversation. Um, but let's get to the interesting stuff. The bugs. I asked Katie to describe her project so far. So I've got two summers in, but the first summer was more of a survey type situation. So I visited um, the few hemp fields in Virginia that actually existed in 2017, just to kind of see what insects were in fields. Um, me getting a handle on what hemp growing on a large field scale even looked like, you know, from the surveys that I took, kind of figuring out what the key pest species were. And what are what are the insects that you're collecting from from this? What are your main pest species? The key pest species that we've been seeing, or at least this is what I think right now, but corn earworm for sure. Corn earworm, you know, as an entomologist working in agriculture, that targets pretty much everything, um, including hemp. Um, and it's, I think, more damaging to the seed varieties because it gets in the top and it can devour like the whole seed or chew into the seed head and cause a lot of problems. We've, I've also seen a lot of yellow stripe armyworm, which I think would have the same behavior, but it's becoming more prevalent, I think. Um, tarnished plant bug is there from season beginning to season end, um, and so is brown worm rated stink bug. Particularly here, there's kind of a complex of stink bugs, but um, these are a, a huge challenge because I don't really know what they're doing. I guess you could say I'm assuming that they're pests because they're pests in every other system pretty much, but where in hemp, the marketable portion in fiber is just the stem. So, I, I mean, if a plant bug fed from that, even if it left a spot on it or something, that's, I don't think that's gonna cause a huge problem. Like you're still gonna be able to use that fiber to make what you want. And the seed varieties, the, the kind of fruit, so to say, would be the seed itself. And they're so small, you can't always tell if they've been fed from or if they've damaged the appearance of it because it's so small. So that then this past summer 2018, I started doing actual experiments. Um, and the key experiments so far have been looking at the effects of defoliation on hemp growth and yield quality type things. 
um, and then looking at the impacts of different insect species on overall yield and quality. So to do that, the artificial, we did artificial defoliation, so using uh, plant clippers and clipping off portions of the foliage area, um, and I did 0, 25, 50, and 75% defoliation. So in my head, that was kind of to simulate no low, medium, and high levels of defoliation, but it turns out that of the actual leaves I collected and scanned to determine how much leaf area was actually removed by insects, that never even reached like five or 10%. So all the defoliation I did was way over the natural mark, which is cool because it's like, well, if this doesn't have an effect on the yield, then they should really be safe from insects. But in Blackstreet, we don't have a lot of pest pressure, so I think we're going to redo that one next year at um, Tidewater and see what happens. The antimicrobial effects of the fibers, like all of these secondary plant metabolites, do you think that this plant is just better defended than most crops? You know, I think that might be the case. So there's a there are some rumors that go around with hemp that um, and people really like to latch on to this, that hemp is resistant to pests of all kinds, so including insects, plant pathogens, and weeds, uh, which, you know, you take a walk through the field on a really hot summer day, and you're like, that's not true. There are weeds everywhere. There might be mold on it late in the season where, you know, especially in the east where we have more moisture than Colorado or other western states, and then there's going to be insects everywhere. But, um, doing these experiments and I know, I know, I know that when you simulate this insect defoliation, it's not true defoliation. So when insects or pests feed, sometimes the plant produces different compounds and if the plant was just kind of torn or ripped, um, but still you're inflicting all this damage to this crop and nothing's really happening to, you know, it's not affecting seed production. It's not really affecting the quality of the seed. So what, kind of what does that tell us? I really do think that it has a little bit more defense than say corn or wheat. You know, as an entomologist, I often wonder too, like this plant, so we've been regrowing it now for a couple of years, not that long, maybe it's still in a kind of wild state, you know, and as we domesticate it, we're going to take away some of its natural defenses. And being on the front lines of this research, I at least want to prove everything like, no, insects do affect this crop. Quit saying that, you know, but then me and Tom say all the time, like, maybe they really, not that they don't, but maybe just like you're saying, the plant is more robust and more able to defend itself than we realize. Yeah, I am really curious about the next few years, um, seeing what happens, you know, when, and not to anthropomorphize insects or anything, but when they kind of get used to um, having it in the system, just like corn or soybeans or something, I wonder what the behavior will be like, or the pest status will be then, you know, like when hemp is grown and even if it's not in the same exact field, but if it's grown at Kentland 10 years in a row um, and there's this certain specific pest of it, will it be more damaging in the years to come than it is right now? But I will say one of the key pests we've seen in hemp too is called the cannabis aphid, um, which is kind of a new report, like new record for North America, which also says a lot because if this hasn't been grown here 
for that many years and we're already seeing this super specific pest on this crop, then um, that's pretty unique. So I think Katie's work tells a pretty interesting story about how we start with establishing economic thresholds. Who's eating the plant? What kind of damage are they causing? How much damage can the plant handle before the crop is injured? For now, it seems like industrial hemp is pretty darn resilient, but you never know. That's it for now. Thanks to Katie from the Guhar Lab and Virginia Tech's entomology department. And thanks to Brentwood's favorite son, Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Formed on IPM is a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.